Good morning. We are thankful you are here. I have to give Charles a hard time. If you were with us last Sunday night, I asked him to lead songs about Mary, which was kind of tough to do in our songbook, and made it a little easier on him this morning with the church there. We are thankful that you are here with us this morning. As we're going to study together for just a few moments, we're uh, thankful if you were able to be with us for our Bible class time. We try to say time and time again, this is an encouraging place. If you will come and be a part of this congregation, if you will just come and be a part of us for our worship time or our Bible class, you will hopefully leave encouraged from that time. It's, it's that idea, even as we're going to get into the church this morning, uh, that, that Christ left the church for us. This, this is what we sometimes call a little piece of heaven because it gives us an idea of hopefully how wonderful it will be one day that we can all be together and worshiping God forever and eternity in heaven. We're thankful that you're here, especially to any visitors that may be in our midst. We've got many who, who of course, are out with sickness and things, uh, and we want to continue to pray for them, some who are traveling, but we're thankful that you are here. I really do appreciate Charles usually asking even, and, and the uh, asking about the songs that can be led to go along with the sermon. appreciate Jerry's prayer so very much there, and the time that we've been able to spend in worship together. Why? can be an interesting question depending on the context that you take it in. Uh, from a very young age, we teach our children about who, what, when, where, and why. If you're like our family, we've enjoyed from time to time pulling out the old board game Clue. And of course, you're after Colonel Mustard in the conservatory with the candlestick. Who and maybe where and, and we don't always get to why though sometimes when we play that game. But we ask those questions. Maybe for some of us, it's ingrained in our memory a little bit more. The year was 1994, and we remember Nancy Kerrigan there sitting down in the hallway after her leg has been struck, and she's crying out, why? Trying to get an answer to that question of why. Depends on what context you ask it in for us to try to understand what we're asking and what we're after. And of course, the, the greatest sound that a parent can hear is their children say, but Why? do we have to do this? Why do I have to eat that? Why are you forcing me to do something that I want to do? And while that can be such sweet music to a parent's ears, sometimes, even sometimes, it can be a legitimate question. Why? Now, sometimes, of course, they're simply wanting a reason, a reason for why we've asked them to do something or told them to do something. And sometimes that answer is it's for your protection. Because when they say, but why can't I go play in the road? We treat them like that sounds crazy because it does to us. We realize that don't go play in the road is for their protection. But other times the answer is, well, just because I said so. Why? Well, over the next few weeks, especially for the month of October, God willing, we want to ask this question, why? about a few different things. I kind of have a series of lessons I, I've done before and I'd like to present them here. We may take a look at three or four in October and come back maybe the first of next year and examine some more from time to time. But why? Why is it that we come to this building every Sunday? Why is it that no woman ever stands in this pulpit here and leads during our times of worship? Why do we have to pass those trays every week? Why isn't there an organ up here on the stage to assist us with our, our worship or our singing? Why do people go up there sometimes and, and get wet? Why do we do any number of things that we sometimes do, not only here in our worship service, but in our everyday life? Why is it that we practice some good things? All these things are good questions. And I would challenge you that if you've not asked that question before, you need to. 
If you do it simply because the elders here have said it, then we've got a problem on our hands. But why? Like our children, sometimes the reason for why we do certain things is simply because God has said so. That is the way that he said he wanted it done. He could have told us that we have to travel to Jerusalem to be saved. He could have said it. We would have had to find a way to get to Jerusalem in order to be saved, but that's what he said. But he didn't. And what he did say about salvation or what he did say about worship or what he did say about fill in the blank is sometimes we do it simply because he has said so. And we're not intending to question God with these series of lessons. No, sir, we're not, we're not questioning God, but we are understanding why we do certain things. And a little, little spoiler alert for you. The reason that we do certain things is ultimately what you will hopefully find through this series of lessons is it's the very same reason that I know that Jesus loves me. And we teach our children to sing it. It's because the Bible tells me so. Why we believe. This morning we want to begin a series of lessons discussing the importance of why. Even as we sang just a few moments ago, one of the greatest images in all the world is a bride, no? A beautiful bride who is ready for her wedding day. If there's one thing that we can agree on, it is often that this beauty and wonder of a woman in the day and moments before she is to be married, it is wonderful. Just yesterday, our, our family was present as one of my stepsisters was going to be married. That's not her, that's just another picture. But, but, you know, she was going to be married, and it was wonderful to think about that. Yes, weddings are sometimes often a little stressful. But when you get through the stress, and you get through the rehearsal and the rehearsal dinner, and you get through the day and some of the pictures sometimes, and you get down to the moment, that beauty of a bride sort of takes over the room. Certainly that moment in which she enters the room and maybe the groom sees her for the first time or even for the first time for that wedding ceremony, it is wonderful. It is beautiful. Maybe you remember, men, maybe you remember your bride in that day and that moment. Women, maybe you remember being the bride and that day being about you. Maybe it was your daughter or granddaughter or a family friend. Maybe you even used the word glorious. Or the idea of being without blemish, pure. Very often this woman is in a white dress as we think about this idea of brides and purity. I realize that in our world today, marriage and even the sanctity of marriage has been severely ignored somewhat and even cast aside. As people marry and divorce, sometimes with just even the slightest of whims, this imagery takes a beating of this beautiful bride. But for that groom, she really is the one the only one no other one will do for him no bride is as good as another she is the one and the question that we're going to ask this morning that we're going to consider in regards to the church is something along the lines of is one church as good as another now we've already kind of answered it with the idea of a bride because yes in that moment and on that day no bride was as good as another this morning, we want to consider the topic of why we believe there is one and only one true church. Is one church as good as another? Does this even matter? Should we waste our time spending talking about that in a sermon or a lesson? But the most important question around that that we can ask is, what does the Bible have to say? Why we believe there is only one church. First of all, this morning, it's because Jesus promised one church. If you've got your outline and you're filling in, number one, Jesus promised one church. A few moments ago, we sang the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ 
her Lord. If Jesus is the chief cornerstone, and he is, then it would benefit us to consider what he said. So, in Matthew chapter 16, in verse number 19, they're continuing in, on in your outline. Jesus says, as they're gathered there with Simon Peter and, and some others are there, and he's asking them, who do men say that I am? And, of course, Peter is always the one to answer, it seems like, oftentimes. Peter's the one to step up and make the statement. Peter says in verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And on down in verse 18 and even verse 19, Peter says, or excuse me, Jesus says back to Peter, and I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18 tells us very plainly, Jesus says, I will build my church, singular, one church. Jesus promised one church. Now we could stop here certainly and sit down. That's, that's, that's enough for us oftentimes. That would be enough. Jesus said it. That makes it so. He promised one church. But of course, that's not the only place that we, he talks about it. If you've got your Bible, go over to Matthew chapter 13. This is another interesting place in which Jesus discusses this idea. He may not say it as plainly as he does there in Matthew 16, 18, but in Matthew 13, we read what are sometimes called the kingdom parables. And that reason is because they are all discussing the kingdom or the church. And notice in verse number 31 that he describes it to those that he's talking to as one mustard seed. Notice in verse 44, as one treasure hidden in a field. And even in verses 45 and 46, as the one pearl of great price. You see, wherever we go, when Jesus is talking about the church, he's describing it in a singular nature. One church. Of course, I love verses 45 and 46 there of Matthew 13, as Jesus not only describes it as one, all of these saying one, but don't miss the point of the pearl of great price, and that is... Not only is it just one, but this one is so valuable that this man, this person who sought it, when he found it, sold everything that he had and went and bought it. That's how valuable it was. Again, we sang a few moments ago, it was so valuable, it required the blood of Jesus to purchase it. But it was certainly one. That is exactly how valuable this one thing was, whether he's describing it in the terms of a mustard seed or a pearl or whatever. He's talking about the church. That's how valuable the one true church is. But I would mention to you here as well, not only did Jesus say it, but really the Bible throughout the Bible talks about this idea of one church. Even in the Old Testament, everything is pointing towards this one church. Church, Isaiah chapter 2 and verses 2 and 3. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house, not houses, but house shall be established on the top of the mountains. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44 in that great explanation of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream as he has had the dream and Daniel is going to explain it with, to him with the help of God. Daniel is talking about a kingdom. And in the days of these things, the God of heaven will set up a 
kingdom, not kingdoms which shall never be destroyed. Micah chapter 4 and verse number 1 is actually a quotation or the same quotation as Isaiah chapter 2. That in the latter days there would be the Lord's house not houses that would be established. And we can even go forward to Mark chapter 9 and verse number 1. This is right before Jesus is going to be transfigured on the mount. He's going to be seen there with Elijah and with Moses. And those that are gathered there, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste or see death till they see the kingdom of God come with power. Not kingdoms, not houses, not churches, but one church, one kingdom, one house. Jesus promised one church. Not only did he promise it, but as we said a moment ago, he purchased it. He also prayed for it. Time and time again, he's pointing towards this idea of one. But not only did Jesus talk about that or promise it, but Paul described it. Paul described one church. It has been said that in Ephesians and Colossians, or that those two books together might be even considered like a two-volume set, if you will. They are connected in some ways. Many writers have said that Colossians is about the Christ of the church, about Jesus, the Christ of the church, while Ephesians is about the church of the Christ. And so we see kind of this connection between Ephesians and Colossians. But as you turn there and notice the book of Ephesians, you cannot touch a verse almost or a page in the book of Ephesians and not read about this one church. It is in Ephesians 4, 4, even again, as we sang in those songs that were led for us, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. There is one body. But then you go over to Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, and Paul writes, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fits all in all. Do you remember in school the transitive property now, I was terrible at math, okay? I had an English teacher who drilled us on all kinds of English rules, so I was much better at that. But perhaps you recall in math, there was the discussion of the transitive property, that if A equals B and B equals C, then A and C must be equal as well. Now, I even tried to Google this, remember how to explain it, and it was too deep for me then, all right? And so, I mean, we're not going to get into it too much here this morning, but think about it in terms of what we just read. In Ephesians 4, 4, Paul says there is one body. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, we are told that his body is the church, or the church is the body. So if we take even scientific or mathematic principles and apply them to the Bible and think about it in those terms, if A equals C, then if there is one body, there must be one church. Notice with me as well, though, that, that Paul says it in other places. He doesn't just say it in Ephesians. And every single time, every single time he says it, it is just one. In Romans chapter 12 and verses 4 and 5. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ. And individually members of one another. 
1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 17. For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse number 13. We sometimes focus so much on chapter 13 as the love chapter. We forget the importance of chapter 12 leading up into chapter 13 of the body. The body being many, but one. Almost the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, is on unity and the church. For by one spirit we, are all, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, remember that's the two main groups If we wanted to speak about all the people in the world during the writing of the Bible, in context of the Bible, they would either describe you as a Jew or a Gentile or a Jew or a Greek. Not only that, but notice there in verse 13, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Again, a broad category. You're pretty much either a slave or you are free. All of these folks together are one Body and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Colossians 3.15 And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. I'm starting to think that not only Jesus, but Paul wanted us to know that there was one body and one church. We have verses that we sometimes pick out and we point to, and that's okay from time to time if we understand the full context and what the Bible is saying. But whether we pick out one, like Ephesians 4, 4, or whether we pick out Matthew, they were Jesus said there that we looked at earlier, or whether we pick out any of these other number of verses, we continue to see this idea of one. Not only did Jesus, and by the way, the whole Bible, like we pointed out, not only did Jesus in the whole Bible describe and promise one church not only did the apostle paul describe it to many people not just those in ephesus but the corinthian letter the roman letter the colossians time and time again he's emphasizing one body but number three we notice together both of these men jesus and paul as we're talking about them specifically this morning both pleaded and don't miss the word there used on purpose pleaded for one church begging for one church. Both of these men, as we are sort of focusing on them this morning, both of these men love this blood-bought institution. And they loved it enough to leave such words for us that not only can we say that they desired unity, but I would submit to you that we can boldly say this morning that division is wrong. Turn first of all to John chapter 17 with me. John 17, verses 20 and 21. As you turn there, and if you recall this particular section of Scripture, Jesus appears, as we kind of read it, to possibly left the upper room. They've been gathered there together. You recall in chapter 13 that he has washed the disciples' feet. We all know chapter 14 where he talks about being the way, the truth, and the life. And he's given these, those that are gathered with him all of these words of encouragement. And it's quite possible that he's left the room, but he's not quite made it all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's still talking, and he's still giving them all these encouraging words. And so in verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 17, this is where we read what we might call the true Lord's Prayer. You might have heard it said before that we oftentimes somewhat, maybe inadvertently in the world, certainly calls the Lord's Prayer what Jesus gives as the model prayer. But here is the Lord's Prayer. This is the prayer of Jesus. You want to know about prayer life? And I hope to preach on that very soon as well. Look at the prayer life of Jesus. In John chapter 17, he prays first of all for himself. 
Then secondly, beginning in about verse 6, he prays for his disciples. But thirdly, you may notice beginning in verse number 20, he prays for the church. And verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Hear the words again of the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, that the church would be one church. But I love it here how he says it. Why? Why should we care so much about it? Why should we strive to have unity and be one? He says it at the end of verse number 21, that the world may believe. How is anybody going to want to be a part of anything when all we do is fuss and fight and there's division among people? How, are, how is anybody going to be able to find the one true church when there is so much division? Jesus is pleading. Maybe not in the same way as we think about great drops of sweat like blood as he's going to pray there before his death. But I would imagine it's similar pleading for the church to be one. That's the only way that people are going to believe. If we have this unity among our people, how can they want to be a part of the one true church when they look around town and on every street corner and see among every denomination or division of church of people not speaking the same thing but of having division? But Jesus is not the only one. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and the Apostle Paul. This is a lesson that could have gone any number of ways. We could have taken any number of routes to try to understand what the Bible says. But as we have thought this morning about Jesus and about Paul, Jesus promising it, Paul describing it, and both pleading for it. We talked about John 17, but let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Think again about the Apostle Paul. I know it's tough, but try to put yourself in his shoes. He's traveling around, right? He's been traveling. He's been going around from place to place. He's been here. And I don't know if you've ever visited a church, a congregation anywhere, but it's encouraging. Whether you go to the beach and you find a place you love to worship or, or Gatlinburg or wherever on vacation and you find a place, it's fun. And you meet people and you get, come to know them maybe from visiting there. And then you travel around again. Paul is leaving behind this trail of churches and he's just trying to establish elders and he's trying to help people. But as he is traveling, as he is going, he continues to get word from time to time. He continues to receive reports. One of those reports that he receives has to do with the church at Corinth. And they've got a problem. So as he's going to write back to the church at Corinth, beginning here in 1 Corinthians, he's got to address this problem. He's got to tell them, hey guys, it's time to straighten up a little bit here. Their problem is a division problem, not a math problem, not even a, a division in this, that kind of sense, but divisiveness division. And he begins in verse number 10 of 1 Corinthians 1 by saying, speak the same thing and let there be no divisions among you. Depending on the version you're looking at, the New King James says in verse 10, now I plead. I can imagine with the same gusto, with the same feeling and emotion that Jesus felt, Paul is saying, please, I beg you to be one, to speak the same thing. Not only is there division here, but as you go forward from verse number 10 in chapter 1, not only is there division, but it's based upon their favorite preacher. I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas. They're finding their favorite pe preacher and they're tagging along with him 
rather than with Christ. Paul takes their division and he tears it apart with three questions. Notice in verse number 13, is Christ divided? By the way, these are rhetorical questions. They knew the answer. Is Christ divided? Certainly not. He is saying that we are united under Christ. Was Paul crucified for you? Well, well, no, we know that Paul wasn't crucified. We know that Jesus was crucified. Well, then we depend on his death and his death alone. Number three there in verse 13, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Well, no, no, I wasn't baptized in the name of Paul. They unfurl, unfurl this scroll. They read this letter. And, well, no, I think Paul's got a point there. We know that we're baptized into Christ. We know that it was his death. He was crucified for us. So we know that Christ is not divided. So Paul is saying, stop the division then. If that's the point that there is one, and I'm pleading with you to be one, then stop the division. There is one true church. It belongs to Christ. It operates under his name. It is the church that belongs to Christ, and it must remain one. There is only one church. Now, friends and brethren, this morning, I understand that through this lesson, there are sometimes some tough questions that arise. So, preacher, are you saying that all other churches are wrong? Is the church really that important? Can't I just love Jesus? Aren't the other churches in town full of good people who are serving God? Are you telling me that all my other friends and family are wrong? How do I know which one is the one true church? I've got to tell you this morning, somewhat jokingly, but well, we're out of time. <laughs> we don't have time to cover all that this morning, but I would plead with you in the same way that Jesus and Paul pleaded. I would plead with you. If you have those questions, let us talk. Come and find me, find one of our elders, and give us a chance to open a Bible. And with open Bibles, reason together from the Scriptures. We simply don't have enough time this morning to answer some of those tough questions that make us uncomfortable and have to ask us to think about the division that we see around us. We simply don't have enough time to deal with these very, very important matters in a thorough manner. If you leave this morning from this discussion, understanding that there is one true church, but that makes some other questions in your mind, please give us a chance to answer. Let's go back to our thoughts on the bride for just a moment. In Ephesians chapter 5, this is how Paul describes the connection between Christ and the church. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse number 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church. And gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. In verse number 27. That he might present her to himself a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that she should be holy and without blemish. That's the description of the bride of Christ. Picture again in your mind that beautiful bride. Friends, this is Christ's bride. This is His church, His body, His one true church. Why do we believe that there is only one church? Because Jesus promised it. Paul described it. And the whole of the Bible writers plead for it. It matters. It's important. We didn't even have time this morning to lay out all the reasons for why it really matters that we ask these questions and believe these things. But again, as anything comes to your mind, please, 
please give us a chance to answer those questions. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to join that one true church of Christ. The church that belongs to Christ. His beautiful bride. He left it. That is how he left it. Sometimes we want Christ here with us. We wish that he would come in the flesh and he would stand here. He would show us his nail-scarred hands. He would do miracles and everybody would believe. But what he left is his church. In his place, as he ascended to the right hand of God and sat down, accomplishing everything he meant to accomplish, making it so that we can have atonement and salvation through and in his name where all spiritual blessings are found. He did that. And he didn't just leave us hanging, even though he's not with us. He left us his bride, the church. And maybe you are here and you need to join that church. We will stand ready and willing to help you. And maybe even study with you further. We put this slide up basically almost every Sunday morning and almost every lesson. And very quickly sometimes have to touch on it. But it's the most important part that you would be added to the church. It's that important. If you're here this morning and maybe you've left that church, the Bible talks about that as well. Leaving your first love. Again, the connection that Paul makes of, of marriage, of a husband and a wife. Yeah, we sometimes leave our first love and sometimes people leave the church. Maybe you have sin in your life that is separating you from God. We will stand ready and willing as well to pray for you and with you to encourage you that you might be restored to your walk of life with Christ, in Christ, and with God. But as all of this that we've discussed really boils down to, it's a decision on our part. But it is the most important decision. Whether you need to join that church or come back to it, you can come forward now as we stand together and as we sing.